Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Okay, Miss Aubrey's going to come and read to you from the book of Philemon this morning. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which in you in Christ Jesus, which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You, therefore, receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be my compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. If, then, you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you, that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. I've told you before, I believe quite possibly that the most powerful forces that exist in society don't wear a badge or brandish a weapon on their hip. They don't have an army, nor are they even something that we see visibly here in creation. Because I believe that the three most powerful forces that quite possibly exist within society and culture on planet Earth are fear and shame and love. And I realize that all three of these are very different from one another, but you'd have to agree with me that all of them are incredibly powerful. Even think about fear. Fear keeps most people from doing anything that's too irrational. However, for other people, fear can drive them to do some pretty crazy things. Think about shame. It can so powerfully grip a person, even if the root and cause of their shame was not even the consequence of their choice or actions. But that shame can take root in their life and be such a powerful force that drives their life. It's the abandonment that they experience. 
It's that they were molested or raped. It's that they were deeply wounded. Decisions outside of themselves that they now carry in silence and shame rules their life. Shame is so often connected to a failure. That then makes us live every day under the gray cloud of defeat as a failure. We even start to believe and to expect that we deserve nothing different or better than loneliness and more failure as a response to it. It's fear, it's shame, but it's love also. Think of love. Yes, love can drive people for sure to do some crazy, ridiculous things. However, we recognize that there's so much freedom and power and love that makes it categorically so different from fear and shame. Not just to be in love with somebody, not just to love somebody else, but to be loved by someone is an incredibly powerful thing. Now, in your life personally, which of those three forces has the most power? Which of those three forces is the most prevalent and the driving force behind your life? Is it fear? Is it shame? Or is it love? You see, for most of us, we've done something that we wish we wouldn't have done. Most all of us have said things that we wish we wouldn't have said. Most of us are disappointed in ourselves about a mistake that we're ashamed of and hoping that no one else will find out about, about a decision maybe that leaves us so afraid of the consequences of that decision finally catching up to us and others finding out about those broken decisions. There's an old story of a young man by the name of Simon who had moved to a new community far from his home. And when he walked through public spaces in that new community, he often kept his head down because he was so afraid that others might recognize him, just in the off chance that they might recognize him and know who he is and all of his past would then catch up with him in that moment. So each new person he'd meet, he had a tinge of fear in his heart that, hang on, do they know? Do they know what's happened? Do they know my secret? Do they know the real me? There was so much fear and shame involved in this young, in this young man's life that he rarely, if ever, let anyone get very close to him because what if they found out his secret? And if they found out, if they knew, would they even still care about him or would that be their reason to put distance between them? Would they abandon him? In some ways, he actually believed, he began to believe that he actually deserved this. He deserved not to be loved. He deserved to be written off by others. He deserved the isolation that he found himself living in because of all of the fear and the shame that he carried. If only they knew my secrets, if only they knew the real me, were the scariest thoughts that he had. Now, most people who know his story don't have the courage to share his story Or unfortunately, their story ends in solitude and shame. I have a friend who his story mirrors this well. And the only reason that I know that his story mirrors that well is because he was so afraid of what people might think of him if the details of his story leaked out and were finally revealed, so ashamed of the mistakes that he had made that he ended up taking his own life before those details could come out. And when every detail did come out after his passing, all of us would have loved him and stood by him had he have given us a chance, but he didn't. The fear and shame that he carried drove him so far into isolation that he took his life and left a family in the wake of that choice, picking up the pieces and trying to make sense of it all. But Simon's story was so different from my friend's. In fact, it ended so radically different from most others who shared his feelings of fear and shame 
It's ended so radically different and is so radically unique that some 2,000 years later, we're still talking about his story. In fact, you just read his story written from his, his friend's pen. His new friend is Paul, the apostle, who wrote the book of Philemon. This is, in fact, the most unique of all that Paul will write in the New Testament. It's unique not just in its brevity, but you probably just noticed it's very unique in its personal feel, isn't it? Also, Paul is quite the persuasive writer, isn't he? Not to mention, you owe me my own, your own self besides those moments where you're like, wow, this is compelling. Also, you did mention it. <laughs> it's also very unique because it's the only thing that Paul will write that does not think about this, that does not explicitly mention the gospel, and that it does not spe- specifically explicitly mention Jesus' death and resurrection and what that means for us. He doesn't explicitly reference it, but think what he does. He shows you instead the power of it. He demonstrates the radical power and nature of it. And that what it does is it brings about forgiveness and restoration, even in lives one to another. Not just between us and God, but it shifts things so dramatically that it brings restoration even in brokenness in our world. You see, what this little book lacks in volume, it's just 25 verses long, it makes up for in value. It's just, you could call it, a short postcard and hardly an epistle at all. But the subject matter of this note, it's extremely important to us. I mean, have you ever thought about why Job's story is recounted for you in such detail? It's just one guy's life story about suffering loss. But the reason Job's story is given to you is because all of us are forced to deal with suffering. And like Job, all of us are left to wrestle with the fact that we don't have clear answers for it. That's why Job's story is recounted. But why is Philemon's story recounted for us? Well, because all of us have to navigate the painful process of being hurt by others and then needing to choose to forgive them. All of us don't just deal with suffering. All of us deal with needing to be forgiven and needing to choose to forgive others. That's why this story finds itself in your Bible today. And when we read this story, I hope that you haven't missed the human emotion involved in it. That there's betrayal in this story and deep hurt. This is a story of powerfully destructive shame and palpable fear that someone is carrying with them each and every day. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend three weeks walking through this story and talking about the implications of this story. We're going to talk about being forgiven, about forgiveness, and about our choice to forgive. Today we talk about being forgiven, and what I want to do today is just marvel with you at this wonderful truth and reality that you and I can be forgiven that's illustrated here. We'll find ourselves in this story. And then next week, we'll talk about forgiveness, looking even at what Jesus teaches outside of just here in the New Testament about forgiveness, what it is and what it isn't. And then the final week in our little series, looking at this, we'll talk about what it's like to forgive. I want to look at what scripture says about finding the power to forgive, finding ourselves freed to forgive. Now, as the story was just read to you, you ready? There's three main characters. You probably noticed it. The first, his name is Philemon. It's who is receiving the recipient of this letter and his wife and the church that meets in his household. It's specifically addressing this man, though, personally. His name, Philemon, literally means affectionate or kindness. He's a master who oversees a household, seemingly a wealthy man that's living in Colossae. And one of that master's servants is the subject matter of this book. But Paul is the second character because he's the one who's behind the pen writing this. 
He's the writer and the old friend of Philemon, who's currently, Paul identifies himself here as a prisoner. And he has a new friend, and that's the third character. His new friend is this guy, Onesimus. He's Philemon's runaway slave, who's now had a change of heart and is going to head home. And I love how Paul uses a play on words because Onesimus' name literally means profitable. So look in verse 10 again. I appeal to you for my son, profitable, Onesimus, whom I've begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is, and the wording here is, easily profitable again to you. There's a play on words where he's saying, I'm recognizing that he's wronged you and hasn't even lived up to his name or identity, but I'm asking that you begin to see him with fresh eyes to see that he could be profitable once again. Now, we really don't know why Onesimus sought Paul out, or if maybe even he was arrested and put into the prison system with Paul. You see, in the Roman world, prison, think about this with me, wasn't the end result of a crime as it is today. Like the end result of the crime is you're guilty of these things, therefore you have a prison sentence. Prison in the ancient world wasn't funded really by the government, and so it wasn't long-term care or enforcement of wrongdoing. In fact, you weren't guaranteed clothing or even meals in prison. That's why Paul is thanking people in his letters for their provision to make sure that he is warm and clothed and fed. But while you were in prison in the ancient world, it was really not a long-term prison sentence. There was no such thing. Instead, prison was a temporary holding space until the Roman government decided what to do with you. They'd either exile you, they'd punish you in some other way, or they'd choose to execute you. Or maybe they'd choose to let you go free. Paul's awaiting word, though, on his fate as he is writing this letter, either from prison in Ephesus or most commentators say probably from Rome. Now, Colossae is only 80 miles. That's still a long walk, but 80 miles from Colossae where Philemon is who receives this letter. But if it's Paul's final imprisonment in Rome, which many scholars believe, then we're talking about nearly a thousand mile journey between these two destinations. And today what we'll do is we'll look at the story through Onesimus' perspective, the one who needed forgiveness, who had burned his master, who used him, hurt him, took advantage of him. And then you assume, look at verse 18, where Paul tells him that I will repay. If he's wronged you in any way, I'll take care of what was lost. I'll take care of what was taken. It seems as though he's even robbed his master before departing. He's the one who's walked the rest of his life with his head down, full of fear and of shame. That's the perspective that we want to look at the story through this morning real quickly. It must have been an awkward conversation, just picture the scene, when these two people, who now are identified in this story as friends, when they're sitting together, and then sheepishly Onesimus begins to bring up his story. Whereas he's opening up and facing his fear and shame, maybe for the first time in a long time, head on, he's telling Paul, I'm not who people think I am. I'm living a lie, and it's pretty ugly, it's pretty bad. It's bad enough that I've walked, remember if it's in Rome, I've walked a thousand miles to put some distance between me and those mistakes. I've walked a thousand miles to hide it from people around me. I walked all the way here from Colossae. And then Paul's ears perk up and he says, I know the place. And then he says, yes, I had a master and he was a good guy. In fact, that's so much of what Paul writes in that introduction, isn't it? To commend that this is a good man, Philemon is. So Nisimus begins to say, I had this master, he was a good man. But Philemon, I don't know why I did it to him, but I left. And then Paul's ears perk up again. I know him. We're old friends. In fact, I led him to faith. 
I told him in this letter, you owe me your own self besides. I've rescued his life from eternal separation from God himself. I mean, think about that moment as the two of them are sitting together like, come on, Onesimus had tried so hard to run from this and now he finally begins to open up to try to find freedom from his fear and his shame and the guy that he opens up and vulnerably bears his soul with is like, I'm close personal friends with the guy that you hurt. The irony of a sovereign God, think of it, who in this moment you look and you don't think that Onesimus was busted, but you do realize that God had set him up, hadn't he? The beauty of that setup is that Paul's someone who he's sitting with, who doesn't just know his friend, his master, but Paul's someone who could look at him and say, oh, but Onesimus, you don't understand my story. I rebelled against God himself. I ran from him too. In fact, I ran the direction of his people and I began to persecute them. I even stood by and watched the first of Jesus' followers lose his life and was a part of the men who made the decision to do it. I watched him die and heard him cry out to Jesus. And then as I walked along a road, I had my own encounter with Jesus. And what I found was that there was still grace for a failure like me. Onesimus, I know that you're running. And I might know your story, but do you know mine? And the power behind my story of unearned, undeserved grace and favor and love and forgiveness that I found in Jesus. Paul could use his own life as proof that failure isn't the end of someone's story. My friends, that might be just the only thing you need to hear today, that failure is not the end of your story, that there's hope and freedom and love and forgiveness that's always possible, that's always available. Now, now part of Onesimus' story are really not that unique in the first century. It seems odd to us because we're looking back in time 2,000 years into the dynamics that are are working in the culture of a slave and a servant or a a slave and its master, a, a servant and his master. Slaves are not uncommon, though, in Jesus' day. Historians estimate that there were somewhere over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. There are more slaves than slave owners. Now, I apologize for the illustration, but I have young children. So if you've ever seen The Bug's Life, you know how this works because there are more crickets than grass, more ants than grasshoppers. The grasshoppers are bigger, more powerful, but the ants outnumber them 100 to 1. And so they know that we have to be extremely harsh because we're outnumbered in order to keep the scales tipped in our favor. Pliny the Elder gives us some interesting details about how they would do that. They were so harsh towards their servants in that day. He tells a story about uh, a friend of Caesar Augustus who was very wealthy and had a pool of moray eels. And when he had a servant who dropped a crystal cup, he, in front of his house guests, made the man to be thrown into that pool and drowned there as these moray eels were beginning to attack him. Historians tell us about one servant, a slave who rebelled against his master and killed his master. So the community tracked him down and then killed him and 400 other slaves in the community next to him to prove a point that you might outnumber us, but we're still in power here. Petty theft could equal crucifixion. There was no limit. There was no justice here. This is a very scary and tense moment for someone like Onesimus to have wronged and stole something. And now Paul's offering to repay. He's in a very vulnerable place. And now Paul is telling him, I want you to go back to your master. In fact, carry this letter by hand back to him. Listen, just as an example, again, of what ancient historians are telling us about these times, Athens in in the height of its city had 21,000 citizens, 10,000 foreigners, and 400,000 slaves. 
Slavery in ancient cultures was typically, it wasn't linked to race or to racism though. Some orphans were made to be slaves. Some would sell themselves into slavery. Some were made, often made, slaves through being defeated enemies on the warpath. And some were then born into slavery as was the case in this day and time frame, because Rome had previously, a generation before, gone out on conquest, conquering so many and dragging their people back into slave under Roman rule, into slavery. Listen, it's in this story, though, about the slave, about Onesimus, that I just find my own story. And I'm hoping you'll find yourself here, too. That I see myself in this guy's very vulnerable space here in this moment. In fact, observe these things, just a handful of them real quick with me. Observe the first thing between a similarity between the runaway slave and me as a person. The first is that his sin brought separation. Look at the story. The first thing that's similar between he and I is that his sin brought separation. Remember, Paul's writing this letter because he's made a new friend while in prison. His new friend is a man who's blown it big time. He's burned his master. And his new friend, this runaway slave, Onesimus, He's more than just a friend to Paul. Paul says he's now a son in the faith. He he meets Jesus through his time with Paul. And Paul now sees him as a son in his newfound relationship with Jesus. Now, Paul then addresses this letter to his old friend in that distant land of Colossae. And he's writing it to Philemon and to Aphia, that's his wife, and to Archippus, his son, who church history tells us pastored the church that gathered in his father's home there in Colossae the same church that would receive the letter of the Colossians. In fact, most church historians say that this guy Onesimus and Epaphras carried these two letters back at the same time, the book of Colossians and then the letter to Philemon. They would have received this letter and then read it aloud in the gathering of their church. Now picture those dynamics when we say that Paul was quite the persuasive speaker and writer. When he's opening this up with Onesimus standing there trembling and in front of the home or the church that meets in his home, he begins to read this letter aloud of Paul's appeal on behalf of Onesimus. You need to know that not all slaves were treated harshly, though, in ancient times. Some would be even taken into the home and treated as members of the family. Some were given training and schooling. They would become lawyers or even physicians, and they would make a lucrative career out of it and future out of it. Some were made into members, true members of the family. Some even then, because of that, would choose to stay after finishing and completing maybe a term of time where they were indebted to someone and served as a servant. They would choose then to become a slave by choice. The Greek word is a doulos, where they would say, I'd rather stay with you than go free. I'd rather trust in your love and care for me than feel the weight and responsibility of me providing for myself. I choose to be here, to stay because of the care and the character of my master. And if Philemon is this good of a guy that Paul's commending him this way, then I can't help but assume that Philemon is probably someone who's treated his servant very well. But now because of this slave's sin, running away and stealing, that relationship and those dynamics have dramatically shifted and changed because his sin brought separation. Which from Onesimus' perspective, it only made his life more difficult. And for from Philemon's perspective, the master of the home... It was a slap in the face in response to his provision. And for both of them, think of it, it only brought pain. That's all it did. It just brought more pain. And this is where I see myself in this story. Like this runaway slave, I've rebelled against the authority over me, against God himself, my creator and my master. I've broken his law again and again, transgressing him. There was a relationship that was originally intended, created in the Garden of Eden itself between God and man that was close and intimate, 
that was unbroken, unhindered. There was trust and beauty and love and friendship. But all of that changed when sin entered the garden and that sin still resides in me. That relationship has changed. It's brought separation between God and I. This is the problem, though. It's not just that his sin brought separation. The second thing is that that debt was really without remedy. And that's the second thing that I find similar with me, that his debt was not something he could pay. Once he had made his decision, once he had betrayed his master, once he had turned his back, how could he ever go back? How could he make this right? It's impossible for things to ever be made the same with he and his master. There's a bridge between the two of them that he took fire to that he himself burned and he didn't have the resources to repair, even the resources to replace what he had taken. How could a slave earn the trust of his master back again? How could he pay his master for what he had taken from him? There was nothing he could do. The damage was done. Onesimus knew it. It was too late. It was too far gone. And again, this is where I find myself in this story. It's not just that my sin left me separated from God. It's that my debt is not something that I can pay. It's without a remedy. It's unpayable. How could I, how could you ever make it right between us and God if we're the ones who burned the bridge between us? How could I ever be the one to repair it? And how could the burning of that bridge be the manifestation of my imperfection and what's required is perfection to get back to him? It's proof right in front of me that I could never do it. The law wasn't given for me so that I could use it like building blocks or stepping stones to go back to God. The law was to demonstrate like a mirror that I could see my own flaws and brokenness, that no flesh would be justified by the keeping of it, that none of us would upkeep the law and be like, well, now God can take me back, but that all of us would look at the, at the law and see the ugliness and brokenness of our own lives and say, I'll never measure up. But the law was also meant to be a schoolmaster, a teacher that points us to our deep need for a savior. See, the other way that I'm so similar is not just that I was separated from God and that I didn't have a way to remedy that separation. It's that the penalty for this, the third thing, the penalty for this man, this runaway slave, was death. And the same is true for me. The laws permitted a master to execute a rebellious slave in this cultural moment under Roman rule because they viewed that person as property and no longer as a person. And Onesimus knew he deserved death for what he had done. Historians tell us that what they would have done if they would have caught him is, is if they were to show mercy, they would burn a large F into his forehead. It stands for fugitavo, that he was a fugitive, forever having his identity be anywhere that he went, that he was someone who could not be trusted, that he would be humiliated in front of the house or other slaves or even made to be humiliated in front of the city as a whole, possibly even choosing to make an example out of him, to strike fear in the hearts of the other slaves in the community, they'd take his life. They'd hang him or behead him or even crucify him. Or sometimes archaeologists have backed up what historians say, and I'll throw one on the screen for you in this moment. Sometimes what they do is they place a metal collar fitted around their necks. The one that'll pop up in just a moment is from the third century from the Roman era that archaeologists discovered one of these iron collars that made a statement in Latin. You can't read the Latin, but that's what that the pendant that's hanging from the collar written in Latin. It says this, I have run away. Catch me when you shall have returned me to my master Zoninius. And if you want to correct that later, I'm happy to let you. He said, here's what you'll receive as a reward. He said, you will receive a gold coin. They would have shamed this man at the very least, or they would have taken his life for what he's done in this moment under Roman rule and occupation. 
Onesimus knew that he deserved death for what he had done. And the truth is, I, I know that about myself. I've earned and deserved. In fact, in Scripture, it says that the wages of sin is death. That's what I've deserved and earned, a wage. It's actually the, the Greek word that's used for a soldier's rations. The soldiers in the Roman Empire, they were paid often with salt. They were paid with other resources. Rarely was it with coins. This is why when they burn the temple, they, they take it down brick by brick, scraping all the gold, so they're at least taking some precious metals home with them. The soldier's rations, the very payment that will sustain them, that they've earned and deserved, is what God says, this is, this is what you've earned and deserved because of your actions, your behaviors. You've been at war with me. And so forever I'll honor that decision and I'll give you what you've worked so hard to get in that separation from me. It's death. It's more than just a physical death and it's an eternal death, a separation forever from God himself. So the response of Onesimus, if it's this bad that I'm separated, that I can't remedy it, and, and that I know that I deserve death, then he does what I do. He ran. That's the fourth thing. Do you see the similarity where he runs from reality? You know, it's funny, as a, as a kid growing up, I remember my parents, we didn't have very much money, but they splurged on a new vacuum of all the things to splurge on. And I just remember all the talk around the house was about the vacuum. Well, I think I was in junior high, and I remember going to vacuum the stairs because my dad told me, mom was gone. That means dad declared martial law. You keep your head down, your mouth closed, and you live through it, and then you live to tell the tale on the other side of it. Rather intense seasons, ask Casey to fact check it, but I, I was told I couldn't go do something until I first vacuumed the downstairs and then the stairs themselves. And I remember lifting the vacuum up to do stair by stair, and I was moving so quickly as I lifted it up, the vacuum, this really nice one apparently that they splurged on, broke in half. So I quickly unplugged it and did what any kid would do. I tried to piece it back together, put a little Elmer's glue on it, and then put it back in the closet. My dad realized later, because I went out to go be with friends, my dad realized that the vacuum had only made it halfway up the stairs, went to check, lifted it up, and you know the rest of the story. Well, the, unfortunately, the rest of the story for me is that when I walked home, finally, as, as much as I stayed out, as long as I stayed out, I couldn't even enjoy staying out because of the dread I had of walking through the door and seeing old dad standing there tapping his foot going, so what happened to the vacuum? Which is exactly what I faced. You know that feeling. It's when you were a kid and got in trouble. And what did mom tell you? Just you wait till your father gets home. And you knew in the back of your mind, yes, a warm embrace is what I'm awaiting. Mercy and grace. But there's anticipation, there's fear, there's dread that exists in us in those moments that drives us to run as kids. Unfortunately, that same reality exists with us as adults, where there's something in us that just says, just put distance between you and that. Just run. Just go. It's what we see this guy doing. He knew this feelings well. Fear and shame really are two very powerful forces, so very powerful that they push him to go great distance, a great distance to put it between he and the one that he's wronged, to hide from his mistakes, to run from his sin, just looking for a fresh start, just, just looking. We want sometimes just an, a new place to start over, a new workplace, a new neighborhood to move in. I just want to move away from the triggers or the things that remind me of that brokenness or that old relationship or that toxic situation. We just want to move forward and have people who either have forgotten about our past mistakes or don't know about them at all. We're just driven to run from our own brokenness. Fear and shame drive us so often even to such extremes, like this guy, Onesimus, who runs so far from home, 
Whether it's Ephesus or Rome, we don't know for sure, but getting lost in the crowds in a massive city seemed like a good idea to this guy. And if it's in Rome, Rome's kind of like California. It's kind of the land of opportunity, but it's a lot like Las Vegas also in that what happens in Rome stays in Rome. So that thousand-mile journey is probably a very, very appealing one, but that is a long journey. That's a long walk for somebody who's very determined to get as far away from a situation as he can. From his perspective, it's very clear that this young man could not face reality. All hope for him was lost for a future. There was no way for him to make things right. So he ran as far as he could from home. He ran as far as he could from reality. And maybe that does describe so many of us. But the sad thing is, what it describes is that fifth thing, the final thing. And that said, in this story, he ends up bound. It's true, isn't it, that running from our brokenness never leads to freedom. It leaves us worse off than when we started. His best attempt, I mean, look at verse 10. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I've begotten while in my chains. Onesimus' best attempt to do things his way, to enjoy his life, to find pleasure, took him to a far worse place than the one that he was running from. He's running from rules and parameters, from restrictions that that are put in place by his master, and it took him to a place where now he seemingly has less freedom than he's ever experienced before. Quite possibly bound in chains next to Paul as a prisoner now, most definitely bound by fear and shame, That was never something he found freedom from, even though he ran to a place so very far away. Now, this is the part where I have you pause. And if you're saying, Trevor, I really don't like that you're trying to compare me to this person. I don't identify with a slave. I don't identify with someone who's done something like this. Scripture itself refers to us as slaves to sin. I'm not just reading into this. This is is our identity before we meet Christ personally and have our sin forgiven that we are in bondage and brokenness and in rebellion at war with God. We're slaves to sin. The truth is the gospel is terribly offensive and that this is how we're identified, that, that it's terribly offensive and that it tells me I'm so much far worse than I'd ever thought. But as we often say here, it's also so very beautiful because it simultaneously tells me I'm also so far, so much more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed far worse than I'd ever imagined, far more loved than I'd hoped or dreamed. You see, we're like Onesimus in that our running from parameters that are put in place by our creator take us to a place where we have less freedom than we've ever experienced. We just compound our brokenness with more and more brokenness. But one day there's a turning point where we hopefully have an experience like he did where he finds himself now with the Apostle Paul, who's a prisoner of the Roman Empire. And maybe he went and sought Paul out, even though he technically was a free man. But he went and sought Paul out because of his reputation and had heard of him. Maybe even in Philemon's home had heard of Paul. And so maybe he went as a free man to to try to get an audience with Paul and to begin to tell him and offload the shame and the fear that he dealt with. Or maybe it just was that. It was his fear and shame. He had no idea who Paul really was, but he found himself in a quiet moment with him. Or maybe it is that he became a prisoner serving a short sentence beside Paul that he begins, begins to open up about his brokenness. We don't know for sure, but what we do know for sure is that he meets Jesus while with Paul. Again, verse 10, he refers to him as my son. This is my son. 
This is not Paul speaking, you know, of genetics. This is not him saying, this is literally my genetic child. He's saying, this is someone who I've become a spiritual father to by leading him into the family of God, by bringing him in now as a child of God, by changing his status, by introducing him to Jesus. And now he's asking Onesimus, scary moment, to now begin a long journey home. He's urging him to go home to make things right. Okay, again, look in your Bible at verse 11. He was once unprofitable to you and now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart. Some translations will read, this is my own heart's desire. Other translations will render it because it's open to interpretation. Is Paul saying this is my heart's desire or is he saying I am sending my own heart? That I love Onesimus. You need to know you receive him. I am sending you someone I love. Keep reading though. He's someone who I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. He's now a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is a scary moment for someone like Onesimus. This could be a death sentence. Rome actually forbid the harboring of a slave. Jewish law in the Old Testament did not forbid it. Seemingly, Paul decides to obey God rather than man and doesn't turn him over, but instead says to him, you must make this right yourself. But I'll help that process with a persuasive argument and a letter to an old friend. There would have been a bounty on his head. There's ancient documents that have been unearthed that are old posters that are drawings of runaway slaves with descriptions about their physical appearance and then descriptions about a reward that would be carried out. In fact, historians talk about something that you almost picture like in Lord of the Rings. Do you remember the ring wraiths? They were the ones who were out chasing after the ring, creepy, scary guys on big horses. They refer to, in Roman history, the fugitavari. They were people whose their sole job was as bounty hunters to, to hunt down fugitive runaway slaves. This guy is living in the fear of even if I go back that direction, the closer I get to home, the more likely it is that I'm going to get picked up by one of these guys. And he wants my head and he wants a bounty. He wants a reward. You're asking me to walk back into danger. And so that's why Paul sends him with this letter and with another friend. Epaphras will go with him. Now consider shift gears in your mind. You've gone from the vulnerable state now of someone who's broken a relationship, can't fix it, doesn't know what to do, but needs to take a step of faith. Shift now to the position of Paul. Think about his perspective in this story. Paul comes up with a perfect solution here, but did you notice that it's a costly solution? Because he doesn't ignore the crimes or forget the debt that he owed. Instead, what did Paul say? He offered to pay it, to pay the debt for Onesimus. Look at verse 17. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he's wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, I'm writing with my own hand, I will repay. Paul didn't ignore the crimes nor forget the debt that was owed. Instead, he's jumped in and offered to pay the debt as a substitute on his behalf. Do you see the change. Do you see that the turning point in the story, in my story, in your story, is that these words that Paul says, they're an echo of the heart of God. 
They're an echo of what Jesus has done for us. This is Jesus in our story, standing up and saying in the story of our lives to the Father, saying, if he's, if you count me as your partner, receive Trevor as you would me. If he's wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Christ, I'm writing with my own hands. I'll pay for it. And Christ would do just that with his own hands being pierced on a cross. As he says in verse 15, receive him back now, not just as a servant, but as a beloved brother. Receive him back. He's departed for a time. Yes, he rebelled. Receive him back forever. This is Christ saying to the father, take him forever with a change in his status, not just forgiven and brought back as a slave, but now there's a change in status where he's not just a servant or a slave, is he? He's your brother. He's a member of our family. He isn't to grovel. He belongs at the table. He has a right to the inheritance. This is Christ standing for us, saying, I have a perfect solution, but it's a costly solution. It would cost a father, causing him to watch his son bleed to death. It cost the son his very life. Because Jesus, like Paul, he wouldn't ignore the crimes, would he? He didn't just say, I'll forget the death. Instead, he stood and said, I'll pay for it with my own hands. And because he did that, the psalmist would write in Psalm 103, verse 12, that our sin has now been removed and cast to a place as far as the east is from the west, points that never intersect. You can go east and forever go east, around and around, and it never becomes west. North and south, you go far enough north, you reach the peak of the north, the North Pole. If you continue in that direction, you begin going south. North and south, they meet in two spaces. East and West never do. He's saying, I'm removing your sin and I will bring it and hold it over your head never again. In Colossians 2, it tells us why that's true when it describes the courtroom of God and says the handwriting of ordinances that were against you, it's the proof of the evidence in the courtroom of God when the accuser arrives and says, there's the evidence against Trevor. It's stacked high, there's lots of it, that Jesus takes it and it says that it was nailed to the cross with him. So when the father slams the the, the gavel down as the judge, Jesus stands as our defense attorney, our advocate, scripture says, and says it was paid for on a cross. Slow down and think with me and appreciate what a crazy thought it is that God was even willing to forgive us and welcome us back into the home. That's what makes the gospel so unique. But can you imagine he wasn't just willing to forgive? He took a massive step further and provided even the means for our forgiveness. That's the beauty of it. The beauty is that you can be forgiven, and there's no sweeter message that you'll ever hear than that reality that you can be forgiven because everything that was needed for you to be made right with God was paid for by another. It's Paul saying to Onesimus, you can go back because any debt you owe, I'll take care of. And because there's a change in relationship that's in your future. You're no longer going back as a slave. You're going back to see your brother. You're going back to be received as a member of the family. You know, it's beautiful. It's in, I'm trying to remember what the, the Apostles' Canon, it comes out of the third century, that there's a vague reference about this guy, Onesimus, who becomes a pastor and leader in the early church. It seems like an amazing, beautiful little hint and glimpse into the kind of embrace that he would end up receiving by Philemon. Oh, in the story, there's a perfect solution, but it's a costly one. And that's true of us too. You know, the application from our message today is not like, go do these three things. 
It's not go work real hard on this or, or try to hone this or, or try to rein this in a little bit. No, the, the application is receive forgiveness, the beauty. Drink deep, take a deep breath and, and know that you can be forgiven. That if you are a follower of Jesus and you're like, yes, I've already received that, then you need to know that today what scripture says about you is that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Don't just receive forgiveness. Here's your application though. As a forgiven failure, Receive forgiveness, understanding that you're receiving it now as a child who is cherished, who's received and treated as you would treat me, Jesus would say to the Father. Forgiveness for you, it might just be a decision or prayer away. For Jesus, it would cost him so very much. But I'll tell you, the byproduct of the gospel's transforming work in my life is that it leaves me now, it leaves me now humble and yet confident. Think about this. The gospel's transforming work that I'm the slave who God intervenes. Jesus comes and says, I'll repay it. Charge that to my account. I'll take care of it. Now receive him as a son and a co-heir. It leaves me humble and still confident. Humble because I see how broken I am, like a runaway slave without a remedy or hope of reconciliation. And I see what it costs God to rescue and redeem me. That's humbling that that's who I am and what God had to do to rescue me. But it leaves me simultaneously confident because I recognize that I don't have to earn or prove my value because I have a God who so loved me and valued me that he would become breakable and broken for me. You see, void of the gospel's transforming work, though, in someone's life, it's hard to be those two things simultaneously, isn't it? To be both humble and confident. Typically, you're either humble or confident. Think about it. Most people, void of the gospel, who are humble, are rarely, if ever, confident or secure people. They may have a a low view of themselves. That's their humility. But it's because they're playing a comparison game with others around them that naturally strips them of their confidence and security. Or think of on the other side of things for people who are confident. They're rarely, if ever, humble because they've worked so hard to earn their confidence. Oh, they're proud and they're secure, but they lack humility. And here's why that matters. A humble and secure person is capable not just of receiving forgiveness, but a humble and secure person is also capable of extending forgiveness. See, the story is not just about Onesimus, it's also about Philemon. Someone who had already encountered Jesus, who was left in humility and yet security, who was left, yes, humble, yet so confident Whereas a a humble person, merely a humble person, will lack the confidence and security, who's terrified and, and pulls away from the idea of forgiving someone else because they have too much to lose because they have too little security. But a proud person who lacks humility, they're not really capable of forgiving others, are they? Because they don't see themselves as being in need of forgiveness or recipients of it. I'm better than you. This is all that your wrongdoing has proven that I'm superior to you. So the last thing that they're going to do is engage with costly forgiveness. However, a humble and secure person is capable not just of receiving forgiveness, but then of also extending forgiveness. Humility and security are the byproduct of the gospel's work in my life. And humility and security then give me the ability and power to go and forgive others as I have been forgiven. 
My humility now as a follower of Jesus leaves me with a realistic view of my own brokenness and therefore creates a gracious view of others who I understand are equally in need of grace and patience, equally in need as I am. And the kind of security it produces in me makes me capable of being wronged and mistreated and taken advantage of without sending me into a state of panic and a state of fight or flight. To forgive others does not challenge or rattle the depth of my security because I find my security in being loved by Jesus. That's my security and significance. I don't know that people can forgive until we first appreciate and receive and experience the power of God's love and forgiveness that he extends to us, which is something we'll talk about in the coming two weeks. But again, I don't know that we can forgive until we first appreciate, receive, and experience the power of God's love and forgiveness he extends to us. And so that's what we do today. We receive afresh the forgiveness that God extends to us. We pause to breathe in and recognize that what he gives us is not a common thing, is not a simple thing. It's a beautiful, costly thing. He had the perfect solution, but it was a costly solution. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.